the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to the Dan Prof Show. So on Tuesday night, the Iranians, with their much-anticipated retaliation, fired more than two dozen ballistic missiles at U.S. forces in Iraq. Uh, the strikes uh, focused on two bases, Erbil in northern Iraq and uh, the al-Assad base in western Iraq. The good news, no American casualties, all personnel accounted for, as you've undoubtedly heard. The uh, additional good news, at least initially, not that you can trust any pronouncements from the Iranians, but nonetheless, I think there is some signaling perhaps here. Uh, it's uh, main propagandist Javad Sarif, the foreign minister, uh, announcing after the attacks had concluded that uh, Iran does not seek escalation or war. So uh, the attack, you never obviously want any attack, but to the extent that uh, we're bracing for World War Three. To listen to the D.C. press corps whip it up and uh, the same goes for Democrats on the Hill and their presidential aspirants. Uh, this was a safe phasing measure by the face saving measure by the Iranians, uh, not end times, not land war in the Middle East, uh, not uh, the reinstitution of the draft being imminent, as had been reported the first couple days of the week. Of course, Mike Pompeo addressed the press yes, uh, on uh, Tuesday, uh, as did President Trump later in the day in a sit down with Greek prime minister. Uh, but the more most and this was a restatement of things that they previously said about the rational, uh, the, 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 the rationale for OKing the strike and about uh, essentially the administration's posture towards Iran, which is to reestablish deterrence for the purposes of of preventing a war, not starting one. And isn't that's what that uh, what has happened with, frankly, on the grand scheme of things, uh, a fairly tepid response from Iran, the declaration that there is no desire to escalate and the opportunity this perhaps presents for diplomatic channels to be reopened or, frankly, to be energized, even though diplomatic channels are always open to some extent. And so what is the media's response to this? Well, uh, you have Democrat socialist candidates for president like Elizabeth Warren on The View yesterday, still trying to figure out which terminology is acceptable for the base of her party. She first called Soleimani a terrorist because he was. Then she walked that back. And Meghan McCain, to her credit, on The View, wanted to know why. Why the flip-flop? 
I don't understand the flip-flop. I, I don't understand why it was so hard to call him a terrorist, and I would just like you to explain. So, uh, I, and I appreciate it, and I appreciate your kind comments. You know, all three of my brothers yes, served in the yes. military. We've talked and about I believe this you, before. No, yes, no. I believe you respect and, the military. And, and I know you do, too. Yeah, okay, um, let's get on with it. This isn't a change. Your truth, the question is, what is the response that the President of the United States should make, and what advances the interests of the United States of America? Uh, okay, fair questions, but answer mine. Dad is a terrorist. Time. He's part of a group that has but been is he desi- a terrorist. He is part of a group that's been designated. So he's not a of course, he is. He's okay. part of a group. Isn't this just such a mealy mouth way to try and answer that question? First, to not answer it. Secondly, to answer it by saying he's part of a group that the State Department has designated to be terrorists. It's a simple question: Is he a terrorist or not? In fact, is he? Was he one of the most uh, bloodthirsty? Was he one of the uh, uh, most prolific terrorists in the world up until the strike that took him out? And the answer is yes. Why so difficult? And what does that say about the state of the Democrat Socialist Party that from President Obama, who had a difficult time using the T word, uh, and now the 2.0 versions with Ilhan Omar having a difficult time describing what happened on 9-11 beyond some people did some things, to Elizabeth Warren being all over the place because she can't figure out what is acceptable for the rabid Trump-hating base, so hateful is the base of the Democrat Socialist Party, that they won't tolerate one of their aspirants calling a terrorist a terrorist? Really? Uh, And... um, so antagonistic, not skeptical, not in, uh, intellectually curious, antagonistic. Part of the resistance is the big government press corps that they suborn Iranian propaganda on their networks. Uh, for example, a CNN, uh, which would be at, could aptly stand for the Crescent News Network, Christian Amamhor uh, interviewed an Iranian vice president, the vice president of Iran for Women and Family Affairs. Yeah. Uh, her name, Masome Eptikar. Uh, she went on with Christian Amanpour to explain the Iranian posture and just what a dire mistake the president made by ordering the strike that took out Soleimani. I'm saying that uh, the American government, the American president, made a serious miscalculation. They made a serious mistake uh, by assassinating, uh, by taking this terrorist action against uh, Commander Soleimani. And uh, I'm sure that they regret what they've done because the response is not only limited to Iran, we see this wave of awakening in many countries in the world, in many European countries. In the U.S., uh, the people in the U.S., uh, their reactions, I've been seeing some of this on the uh, social networks, on Twitter. Uh, This is an awakening. The people now understand very well uh, what has happened and uh, the terrible actions of the American government. Is that what's happening? There's an awakening. There's a rallying around the Iranian flag. No, I don't think so. There's a lot of mealy-mouthed pronouncements from Democrats who cannot concede anything. 
I talked about this the other day, cannot concede taking out a terrorist that is mentioned in the same category as Osama bin Laden and al-Baghdadi. President Obama ran a re-election campaign on taking on bin Laden and was it was a roundly he was roundly celebrated for greenlighting that mission that took out the mastermind behind 9-11. And you can say that taking out someone who is reportedly responsible for hundreds of deaths of U.S. soldiers in addition to thousands of Iraqi soldiers and civilians, you can't say that's a good thing? And listen to this, which largely goes unchallenged by Amanpour. You know, Iran... Iran is a nation in search of peace. Uh, we're working always for peace and stability in this region. And, uh, of course, Soleimani was a hero in the war on terror, don't you know? That is the reason. That's the main reason that he was targeted, because he stood up against terrorism. He was a symbol of the uh, demise of Daesh and uh, uh, his strength, uh, his charismatic personality, uh, the fact that he was uh, also uh, very, very close to the people in his heart. Sure. Uh, I think that this is is very important today for us. Revere General. Well, that's what the Washington Post said. So why shouldn't some flack for the mullahs say the same thing? Revere General. Yeah, uh, he uh, was involved with the militias in Iraq and going after ISIS, she is, were part of that. But of course, without American support, you don't eradicate ISIS. You don't dismantle ISIS and its uh, nascent caliphate the way that it has been de- uh, dismantled. And it was the, the eliminating these terrorists so I can be the lead terrorist. I control all the terrorist activity. I'm at the top of the terrorist, terrorist pyramid with Soleimani's perspective. Hardly redeeming. Uh, just another example. The D.C. press corps coverage of this Time magazine. How to talk to your kids about the situation with Iraq. Uh, Excuse me, with Iran. How to talk to your kids about the situation with Iran. If my child is feeling worried, what should I do? Does killing of Soleimani mean the U.S. and Iran are going to war? I'll uh, cede my time on how to talk to your kids about this to uh, Seth Mandel, who uh, tweeted out uh, the guy who threatened another Holocaust of our people and who had the means to try to carry it out is gone. I hope that's okay with you, kids. Well said. You're listening to The Dan Prof Show. Thanks for joining us. Back to the Dan Prof Show, reading from a novelist up at the New York Times, Richard Flanagan. Australia today is ground zero for the climate catastrophe. Its glorious Great Barrier Reef is dying. Its world heritage rainforests are burning. Its giant kelp forests have largely vanished. Numerous towns have run out of water or are about to. And now the vast continent is burning on a scale never seen before. 
Uh, it may have something to do also with the 183 alleged arsonists who've been arrested since the start of this year's brush fire season, according to the Australian uh, newspaper down there, adding that 29 fires were deliberately started in uh, the region of southeast New, uh, the southeast portion of New South Wales in just the past three months. Um, the, do the arsonists bear any culpability here? You know, the, the actual literal fire starters? Hmm. Where are we? With respect to climate change, what's the what's the you know, science sort of the, the foundational information we need to have a conversation? Well, Patrick Moore, the co-founder of Greenpeace, he did a Prager University video a few years ago that's uh, just as relevant today as it was in 2015 when the brush fire of hysteria hadn't reached the proportions it does not, it has now. In point of fact, Moore uh, describes the period in which we're living now. Uh, a period of warming? Actually, it's a little ice age. The only constant is change. That's true about life, and it's true about the climate. The climate has been constantly changing since the Earth was formed 4.6 billion years ago. For example, in just the past 2,000 years, we have seen the Roman warm period, when it was warmer than today, then came the cooler dark ages, followed by the medieval warm period, when it was at least as warm as today, then we had the Little Ice Age that drove the Vikings out of Greenland, and most recently, a gradual 300-year warming to the present day. That's a lot of changes, and of course, not one of them was caused by humans. During the past 400,000 years, there have been four major periods of glaciation, meaning that vast sheets of ice covered a good part of the globe, interrupted by brief interglacial periods. We are in one of those periods right now. This is all part of the Pleistocene Ice Age, which began in earnest two and a half million years ago. It's still going on, which means that we are still living in an ice age. That's the reason there's so much ice at the poles. 30 million years ago, the Earth had no ice on it at all. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by the aforesaid co-founder of Greenpeace, Patrick Moore. Patrick, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Uh, very good. Thanks for having me again. Well, um, how do you react to uh, the latest iteration of some of the hysteria, as so exemplified by Richard Flanagan, Australia ground zero for the climate catastrophe per these brush fires? Yeah, these guys are far better at rhetoric and extreme language than they are at their knowledge of climate change or the Earth's history. That's the problem we've got here is it's all hyperbole. Uh, it's, it's fake uh, science and fake news and fake extremism and all the rest of it. Uh, you've got 183 people now arrested for starting fires in Australia. It, it's, it's, it's more of an arson problem than anything else. But the reason the fires are so intense is partly because this is the hottest time of year in Australia and it's therefore the driest time of year. But the reason they're so intense is because they are not being managed and they're not being managed to reduce the buildup of fuel load and gra dead grass and that sort of thing. The Aborigines who came to Australia 60,000 years ago, I don't know how long it took them to learn to do this. But they burned on purpose when it was cool and moister so that the fires were not extreme, but they did take out the dead wood and didn't go up into the tops of the trees, what's called a crown fire, 
And that is what really, you know, takes off and just goes across the landscape faster than the animals can run, faster than humans can run, and burns vast areas. And the reason we're not managing the forest properly, not just in Australia, but in, in California, in many countries of the world, is because of the green movement's hands-off approach to nature. They, they have this idea that anything that people do is negative. And the fact is we can control these fires from getting out of hand by managing the forests properly. Uh, an indigenous voice that uh, backs what you're saying is James Morrow who's the opinion editor of Australia's Daily Telegraph. He's been there for two decades. Uh, he recalls his first Christmas in Australia in 2001, where the uh, uh, it was about 100 degrees Fahrenheit. He uh, writes, the climate change narrative grossly oversimplifies brush fires whose, uh, and bushfires, whose causes are as complex as their recurrence is predictable. Byzantine environmental regulations prevent landlords from clearing scrub, brush, and trees. State governments don't do their part to reduce the fuel load in parks. Last November, a former uh, fire chief in Victoria slammed the state's minimalist approach to hazard reduction burning in the off-season. That complaint is heard across the country. Yep. Well, you know, the problem with Australia, it's really interesting, they have one of the highest urban populations as a percentage of their total population. The people who live in the city generally don't have a clue how to manage the land outside the city on the farms and and in pastures and forests and so the policies uh, for land management in australia even though they're a very advanced country technologically and economically etc are completely ridiculous they, they they have all these green fantasies and they reduce it all to climate change when it's much more complicated than that it is true that we're in we've been in a 300 year slight warming period of one degree celsius that cannot be the cause of the fires fires are caused by a spark or by a match or by a cigarette or by someone purposely setting fire to them with a lighter or whatever they do with these arsonists they they should be put in jail for life these people because they are causing untold amount of damage i mean it's just ridiculous it does break your heart and it's all being caused by ignorance and that part of the ignorance is this blaming climate change for everything and listening to 15, 16-year-old children telling us how we should manage the planet and all this stuff about ending fossil fuels uh, and, and, and putting us back into a you know, Middle Ages economy again. It's absolutely crazy, and it's, something's got to be done about it. But there's all these elites and opinion leaders and fake media and everybody... Uh, fomenting on this stuff. I don't know where it's going to end up, but it's becoming more and more hysterical. And hopefully that is a sign of their desperation because more and more people are catching on to the fact that this is totally fake. And uh, and for those who uh, don't believe that this is uh, uh, the, the, the climate change proponents that you're describing, take what they're saying as just an article of faith. They're sort of indifferent to the evidence, the history, the science. Uh, the uh, newest uh, featured product online, pray to St. Greta Thunberg, saint of climate change. Uh, Greta, Greta Thunberg uh, prayer candles. They're, they're, I care. Mean, the Greta Thunberg, Greta Thunberg prayer candles. Yeah. yeah. That, that that you know that's okay, I guess. But you sure. know the the straight jacket is probably required in this case. <laughs> 
Patrick Moore, co-founder of Greenpeace. Uh, check out his musings at Twitter. Uh, he's definitely worth a follow at EcoSense Now. Patrick, thanks so much for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Nice to be with you. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Well, the waiting game for the articles of impeachment to be transmitted from Speaker Pelosi to House Majority Leader McConnell. That continues... But uh, McConnell's silence hasn't in terms of laying out how this trial in the Senate will proceed upon receipt of those articles. McConnell taking to uh, the uh, dais yesterday to explain to the assembled D.C. press corps that uh, you know he's got the votes to move this thing along and uh, he will do so in this fashion upon receipt of those articles. I think some of you already written this, but I wanted to make sure you understood that we have the votes uh, once the impeachment trial has begun, to pass a resolution essentially the same, very similar to the 100 to nothing vote in the Clinton uh, trial, which sets up, as you may recall, what could best be described as a, maybe a phase one, which would include, obviously, the arguments from the prosecution, arguments from the defense, and then a period of written questions, because remember, uh, senators are not allowed to speak during the impeachment trial. So basically written questions submitted uh, to either the prosecution or the defense through the uh, chief justice. At that point, during the Clinton trial, the issue of uh, the appropriateness of calling witnesses was addressed. Obviously, that is the most contentious part of one of these uh, proceedings. And that'll be addressed uh, at that time and not before the uh, uh, trial begins. Uh, Senator's not allowed to speak. Boy, I wish that was uh, more of a uh, a feature of the Senate, but uh, important to lay that out so people understand how the, the trial will proceed if and when it ever does. Uh, and I think McConnell is uh, shrewd to not so subtly say, hey, uh, we're basically going to follow the Clinton impeachment model. Uh, you remember that 20 years ago? So uh, there's a precedent that was set. So we're going to abide that precedent. So how can you have objections based on fairness when you didn't have those objections 20 years ago following the same process? Uh, pretty simple argument to understand. Pretty difficult one for uh, Democrats to successfully counter McConnell, on the matter of uh, waiting for those articles of impeachment? With regard to getting the papers, it is a rule of uh, impeachment in the Senate that we must receive the papers. It continues to be my hope that the Speaker will send them on over. Uh, The House argued that this was an emergency. They needed to act uh, quickly, that the President was such apparently from their point of view such danger to the country that they needed to really rush this through and then they sat on the papers now for three weeks Uh, i hope that'll end this week i understand there's considerable discomfort among senate democrats 
some of them expressing that to some of you over the continued delay in sending it on over. And that's another pretty straightforward argument McConnell has to undermine the legitimacy of the impeachment uh, more generally and Nancy Pelosi specifically, which is if he is a mortal threat to our republic and if you're moving with some sort of fierce urgency, then how do you sit on your hands for three weeks? And how does Steny Hoyer forget that uh, impeachment is even going on in a memo he circulates to the caucus previewing the uh, legislative session? Uh, for 2020. Yeah, it's just not particularly persuasive. It smacks of cheap and slipshod politics, doesn't it? And speaking of politics, an important piece uh, by uh, Senator Mike Lee from Utah, FoxNews.com, makes the point uh, that how the press is describing senators' responsibility, how the Senate functions in an impeachment trial as a jury is incorrect. It's not correct. And in point of fact, going back to the Clinton impeachment, uh, there was a precedent setting ruling on that very matter. The use of the word jury by then Chief Justice Rehnquist. It was an objection from Democrat senator from Iowa, Tom Harkin, Chuck Todd's former boss. Uh, He objected to the use, did Harkin, the use and the continued use of the word jurors when referring to the Senate sitting as triers in a trial of the impeachment of the president of the United States. Uh, Rehnquist said the Senate is not simply a jury. It is a court in this case. Therefore, counsel should refrain from referring to the senators as jurors. It, why is this more than just semantics? Because the authors of the Constitution knew impeachment was an inherently political act. Given the inherently political nature of impeachment, writes Senator Lee, senators can nor should set neither can nor should set aside political considerations when hearing an impeachment trial senators are expected to weigh the best interests of the country in each and every vote and defend the madisonian institutions in each and every vote and so that goes with impeachment as well this is the dan proft show Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. ADP projecting that the December jobs number will be north of 200,000 jobs, which is about uh, a third higher than uh, experts' predictions. We'll see. Sometimes the ADP number is off. We'll find out on uh, Friday what the actual December number is. But it looks like well, the economy continues to hum along. It's certainly humming along for Elon Musk uh, as a story yesterday Elon, uh, his uh, company, his car company, Tesla, the most valuable car company in American history. Remarkable market cap approaching eighty three billion dollars, which exceeds the peak of Ford Motor Company's market value uh, in real dollars, in real terms uh, from 20 years ago in 1999. For uh, more on uh, both of those topics, we're pleased to be joined by Scott, the cow guy, Shalady, Fox Business contributor. Scott, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. No problem. Glad to be on. Uh, I'm sure you were wowed not only by uh, Tesla's market cap, but by Elon Musk's uh, striptease routine uh, <laughs> at uh, his uh, the launch of his Model Y sports utility vehicle at uh, the facility in uh, Shanghai yesterday. Yeah, well, I mean, he's he's benefit he's benefiting from some weird psychology right now. I mean, 
the valuations are, you know, they're uh, sky high. They're in, I, I, I'm not going to say insane, but they're close to it. And there are some people that are, are getting hurt because they, they disagreed with where that stock was going. And you've got ranges from experts um, thinking it's going to be anywhere between 100 bucks a share and 700 bucks a share. And it's kind of right in the middle right now around 450. So nobody really has a handle on it. It's got a long history of government um, government help with <clears throat> different programs with the electric cars. That's been kind of a, a, sure. a nice rebate for them. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, if you take a look at what's happened in Europe, not, not Tesla wise, but when they take away those rebates and they take away those incentives, they don't sell any of those cars really. Um, so that's a problem. So a lot of folks have looked at it that way. And, and really the smart guys, I think are really more looking at it as a technology company rather than a car company. And that might probably be a safer thing to do, but that's probably also why it's getting the valuation it's getting. But another problem is, is that the guys that don't like the car company are shorting that stock. And I don't know if the listeners understand, but there's, there's, there's a big short interest in the stock. And that's, I think a large part of the cannibalization on the way out to try to get that stuff back. The, uh, uh, though that you have other luxury car makers, not just luxury car makers, but including electric car makers that are also trying to compete though, in the electric, uh, sport utility vehicle market. Yeah. And well, a couple of things on that. Um, he, he's a first mover, so he's got some advantages there, but you know, gas needs to be five bucks a gallon for you to, to pull all these guys out of their F one fifties. Really? So, I mean, there, there has to be some economic things that happen there to really make it come, come to roost. I, I'm, I'm probably in the camp of, I'm a doubter. I, I, I think that, uh, you know, my definition of a pioneer is a guy with a coonskin cap face down in a puddle of water with arrows in his back. Right. <laughs> so that's, that's maybe that definition that's needs some updating, but yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, I need some updating period. Um, and so I, I think that he's getting the valuation from two things, really mainly. Uh, there's a tech valuation there that a lot of people really like, and that's sexy. And at the same time, there's a, it's, it's a big short interest, and those people are getting hurt, and they're having to cannibalize themselves on the way out, and they're, they're buying their stock back, and that's a, another, another reason. So uh, this may be short-lived, but again, the, um, the, the expectations are that it's going to be a volatile ride for sure. Uh, 10 months from uh, the 2020 election, effectively, and uh, as I mentioned at the outset, if ADP's number is ballpark, looks to be another decent jobs number posted for December, and the economy continues to hum along. Uh, any particular uh, gathering storms you see on the horizon? Uh, no, I, you know, I think the impeachment thing is going to be a moot point. I think that we'll probably most likely get through this Iran thing. Um, and so then we had again last year, three things that really kind of put us behind the eight ball. We had the USMCA being stalled. We had Brexit kind of putting people's hands in their pockets and not taking any risk. And then obviously the big one, China, and those three all look to be making some great headway already this year. So those headwinds are going to be tailwinds, and if he continues to do what he's doing with those numbers, he's going to be hard to beat. And one of the things that you've uh, said to me in the many conversations we've had uh, with respect to, for example, the China trade deal, even if it's uh, marginal in terms of the substantive details about how much additional trade, how much additional exports, even if it's marginal in the grand scheme of our $20 trillion economy, the psychic uh, impact of getting a trade deal done, getting a phase one done with the prospect of a phase two and uh, the 
warming up of relations with respect to economic policy and tariffs between the two countries. That that psychic piece of it is is important. And it's almost immeasurable because it is it's probably the most important thing, just like nobody wants to go into a recession because a recession is psychological as well. Right. Nobody wants to spend money because they think everything's going to be cheaper next week or next month. So, you, you know, the, the psychological impact is big and it gives the CEO some certainty. So you, you package certainty with psychology and if those things are going in the right direction. Again, it's, you know, it's going to be he's going to be hard to beat. Uh, but that doesn't mean that the uh, prosperity is evenly distributed around the country. And of course, 2020 is also a census year. So there's going to be some redistribution of congressional seats based on population redistribution. And uh, as the Wall Street Journal editorialized, uh, blue state policies are redistributing population away from those blue states to places like Texas and Florida and Tennessee and Arizona, away from places like Illinois and California, New York and New Jersey. Yeah, and and rightfully so. I mean, uh, you know, you run your state poorly for 70 years with only one, you know, one uh, political power. uh, That's going to be a problem because look at what the numbers are showing you especially my home state. Well, I'm in Indiana now, but I used to be in Illinois. I also have a house in Arizona, and it's, it's being overrun by people jumping over the border from California. So uh, this is this is the consequence you get when you do what you've done. Obviously, Florida has been a big you know, beneficiary of what's been happening in New York and New Jersey. And so you can't keep taxing smaller amounts of people more and more to kind of make up for your books. And you're not, you're not going to tax your way out of this. I mean, we've probably had this conversation a thousand times. You're going you're gonna to have to cut your way out of it, too, and, and nobody's willing to make, to make those choices. And so if no one's willing to make those choices, you know, on paper, things absolutely look dire, and they're not getting any better, especially where I'm from in Illinois. He's an, it's an uh, Econ 101 axiom, isn't it? Uh, capital goes where it's treated best. It's just that simple. <laughs> exactly right. Uh, Scott the Cow Guy Shalady, Scott Shalady, Fox Business contributor. Scott, thanks for joining us on the Dan Prop Trust. No problem. Thanks. I want to fly like an eagle. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We're talking to Scott Shalady, Fox Business contributor, in a previous segment about uh, federal spending, uh, spending at the state level, too, spending, tax and spending policy. Uh, this story t- comes to us from Judicial Watch, which uh, served as sort of the shadow Department of Justice during the Obama years. Now it can get back to uh, being sort of a shadow inspector general for the federal government writ large, that $4 trillion enterprise. And uh, they want to alert our attention, taxpayers' attention, to uh, an epidemic Inside the halls of power in D.C., the epidemic, government employees watching porn. Yeah. Department of Interior, uh, the uh, a employee for the Bureau of Land Management, which operates under the Department of Interior, admitted to investigators uh, from the agency's IG's office. He viewed adult pornography on multiple occasions, though he knew DOI prohibits it. Uh, and uh, that prompted uh, more of a look-see at uh, such incidents across agencies. In fact, uh, that look-see prompted (laughs) legislation to be introduced 
Eliminating Pornography from Agencies Act introduced in Congress a few years ago to contain these uh, embarrassing crises. Uh, but it doesn't know, it's not so clear that it's working. Uh, the Judicial Watch reporting that among some of the, uh, the agencies with the worst offenders, National Science Foundation uh, employees spend significant portions of their workdays watching, downloading email pornography on government computers without ever getting caught. In one case, a senior National Science Foundation executive spent at least 331 days viewing porn on his government computer, chatting online with naked women without getting caught. A separate employee accessed hundreds of porno- uh, pornographic websites during work hours in a three-week period. Another was caught with hundreds of photos, videos, slideshows containing porn. None of those public employees subject to criminal prosecution, civil court action, or debarment, though some got suspended for short periods of time. It's even uh, infected the farming community over at USDA. The uh, IG there issued an agency uh, leadership, issued the agency leadership, a management alert memo warning of significant increase in the number of USDA employees and contractors viewing and sharing unlawful or otherwise inappropriate pornographic content. Uh, I, I, boy, there's a farmer joke in there too. The only USDA joke I know is, uh, uh, did you hear the one about a farmer who walked into the USDA and he saw a, a, uh, ag employee with his head down crying at his desk and the farmer asked the, uh, bureaucrat what's wrong. And the bureaucrat told him my farmer died. Hi. Uh, but the good news is, I suppose that I, there are worse things that many of these bureaucrats can do than view porn on the job. They can actually do some of the jobs that have been created by the politicians to, to serve as minders over the, uh, the idiosyncrasies and details of your life. This is the Dan Prop Show. Good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to the Dan Prof Show. CNN settling the libel suit that Nick Covington, Nick Covington, Nick Sandman of Covington Catholic High School in Kentucky uh, brought along with uh, similar suits against the Washington Post at NBC. Those are pending. Uh, Undisclosed number, but the CNN uh, complaint, the complaint against CNN that Sandman filed, $250 million. That was the demand of obviously whatever he got is probably a small fraction of that but still substantial and cnn didn't want to go to trial uh and they shouldn't want to go to trial because their coverage and uh, that goes for the wapo and nbc too shameful there were a lot of disgusting disgraceful episodes with respect to the media in 2019 and remember what the fallout was once the media turned its blowtorch on sandman and uh, the other kids and the school Go after these kids, go after the universities where these kids are scheduled to attend and try to get them yeah, right bounced or if they haven't received their decision, try to get them not admitted. This is really one of the most despicable incidents of mobocracy 
that I can recall, mob media led mobocracy that I can recall. And it would have been so easy to get the story right. All you had to do was be intellectually curious. Look around to find the entire episode. Look around to find context before you delivered your verdict. There's a great video that was produced by Sandman's attorney. Her name is Lynn Wood and goes right from the beginning uh, to the media coverage that precipitated the lawsuit and represents uh, it's great because it represents a permanent record on one of on some of the most shameful conduct. I'm talking to you, S.E. Cup, Republican on CNN. What a joke. On January 18th, 2019, in Washington, D.C., the very first Indigenous Peoples March was scheduled at the same time as the 47th annual March for Life. Students from Kentucky's all-boy Covington Catholic High School were instructed to meet on the stairs of the Lincoln Memorial to await their bus home. Many of the boys were wearing Make America Great Again hats, which were acceptable attire for the pro-life event they had just attended. A few yards away were five black men who identified as Hebrew Israelites. This known hate group was already preaching racial slurs at indigenous marchers. You're not supposed to worship eagles, buffaloes, That's right, rams, right. All types of animals. That's right. This is the reason why the Lord took away black your people land. Indian meat savage. You know where that you know name came from? You know where that name came from? It came from the so-called white man. Indian means savage, brother. I don't know where you got that from. Look it up, brother. I did look it up. I'm a historian. You find it out for yourself. This is the problem, Israel. It's always our women thinking they can come and distract things with their loud mouth because they're not used to dealing with no real men. You n***a. You n***a. Get your old Uncle Tom out of here. That's the Damn, Uncle Tomahawk. That's right. That's Uncle Tom's. Your Uncle Tomahawk. That's right. Got your head up the white man's Curious, a few of the Covington students moved closer to hear what the Israelites were saying. Bring y'all crack up here and make a, and, and make a statement. Tell them come over here in the lion's den. You little dirty crackers, your day coming. Without incident, the boys returned to their group, which was expanding as more students arrived at their meeting spot. The Israelites did not stop. On the back of your dollar bill, it says, in God we trust, but you give rights. The Bible condemns homosexuality, man. This is a bunch of future school shooters. So uh, you, you have to get the you have to go back and remember. So we have some institutional knowledge here. How obvious this story was. If you looked the, the black Hebrew Israelites and these Native American protesters, marchers, um, it was a conflict between them. The boys are standing off to the side waiting for their bus. They see this ruckus. They approach, but they're a good 30, 40 feet away. And then they get verbally accosted by the black Hebrews, your school shooters. Notice these terrible MAGA wearing kids from Covington Catholic High School. When the black Hebrew Israelites, one of them, used a slur against gay people, they booed him. Terrible people, these kids. Now enter Nathan Phillips, the chief antagonist in the story. After nearly an hour of enduring the verbal attack, the boys asked their chaperone if they could perform one of their pep rally chants to drown out the hate group. The chant attracted the attention of a group of Native Americans led by veteran activist Nathan Phillips. Though Mr. Phillips later claimed he was trying to get to the Lincoln Monument, he bypassed the most direct and unobstructed pathway and went straight to where the Covington boys were standing. 
Look at the hats. Look at our Make America Great Again hat. They began to celebrate by chanting and dancing to the beat. Is it possible that the boys saw the Native Americans as allies, stepping in to help drown out the Israelites? There was a group of over 200 young, angry white men, and they were facing down just four black individuals. And it was coming to a point where a snap of the finger could have caused them kids to descend on those four individuals. More Nathan Phillips. What the hell is going on here? Now this is a peace circle? Ain't gonna be no peace until blood is shed. Why are you being mean? When I went in front of that mob and what appeared to be their prey, all that hate and anger transferred to me. And the images were the same images that I seen on the folks that were doing the lynchings and the scorns and the scowls that were on the pictures there. That's what these young people's faces looked like. It was... It was scary. This is reported by all of these outlets breathlessly, at least in the initial hours and days after this incident went viral. And then Nathan Phillips confronts Nick Sandman. Mr. Phillips began moving to his right, down a line of boys, eventually stopping face to face with Nick Sandman. The young man remained where he had already been standing, placing his undivided attention on Mr. Phillips, who never once tried to move beyond him. It's worth noting that Nick Sandman was standing on a higher stair, making his small size appear much larger than he actually is. We are hearing from a Native American elder and Vietnam War veteran speaking to CNN after a disturbing viral video shows a group of teens harassing and mocking him in the nation's capital. The Native elder was identified as Nathan Phillips, a member of the Omaha Nation and a Vietnam vet. Phillips describes the tense moments now being replayed over and over again online when a young man got right in his face. Watch. That's CNN's reporting. And then the accusations, the story that Nathan Phillips invents and uh, that story amplified. And one of the accusations was that the kids were chanting, build that wall in the direction of the Native Americans, including Phillips. When that young man blocked my retreat, he put himself in front of me. So I stopped and I thought, okay, I'm gonna take another step, but he wouldn't move. I took another step, he wouldn't move. You feel you were blocked? Oh, I was blocked. You mentioned that the youth uh, kept chanting, uh, build a wall. Now this is astounding, given the fact that you are Native American and yet they're chanting, build the wall. It makes little sense to angrily chant, build the wall, to a population with literally zero illegal immigrants. Okay, SE Cup. Long before we okay, SE Cup. After watching every video posted from that day, from every possible angle, I've yet to see or hear one Covington kid utter those words. I did, however, find a clip of the Israelites saying this. Well, look at these dirty-ass crackers. Can't stand in the damn sun for five minutes. Why you don't build the damn wall? So if you want to make America great, because for you white people, go back to Europe where you came from. This is not your land. So it was the black Hebrew Israelite. The instigators that were facilitated by the antagonist, Nathan Phillips. People should remember the specifics of this incident and share it. Think about the, if this was your kid and he was just put into an international crucible by a bunch of charlatans and thugs and racists. Uh, and enough about the media. I'm talking about also the black Hebrew Israelites and Nathan Phillips.
Nick Sandman, in that moment, tried to de-escalate the situation as the video shows. This is a critical moment that was omitted from the mainstream narrative. Get the f*** out of my face with that shit. Hey, it's not, it's not bullshit. It's proven, man, come on. It's proven. It appears as though Nick is trying to hush his schoolmate to show more respect to Mr. Phillips. And that was that. Their bus arrived and the students went on their way. And that was it. Just to conclude, Whoopi and Joy Behar trying to figure out how, how could this happen? Why do we keep getting it wrong? Just a simple search. Just search. You would have found it all. Is it that we just instantly say that's what it is based on what we see in that moment and then have to walk stuff back when it turns out we're wrong? Why is that? Why is, do we keep making the same mistake? Because we're, we're desperate to get Trump out of office. <laughs> That's why. Tell me there is something more egregious than this case. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome to the Dan Prof Show. This is uh, a pressing topic. I know there are a lot of political and geopolitical issues to discuss, but there are important cultural ones in this country, too. And this is a good piece by Richard Friedman, the New York Times. Uh, He is a uh, professor of psychiatry at Cornell. Why are young Americans killing themselves? Teenagers and young adults in the United States are being ravaged by a mental health crisis, and we're not doing anything about it. As of 2017, stats show that an alarming number of them are suffering from depression and dying by suicide. In fact, suicide is now the second leading cause of death among young people, surpassed only by accidents. After declining for nearly two decades, the suicide rate among Americans aged 10 to 24 jumped by more than 50 percent in the last decade. For the first time, the gender gap in suicide is narrowed. Still greater in males, but the rates of suicide for female youths increased by 13 percent each year between that uh, over that decade compared with 7 percent for men, male youths. Rate of teen depression is up 63 percent. In 2017, nearly one in six teens reported at least one episode of depression in the past year. That's a doubling from a decade earlier. So how is it possible that so many of our young people are suffering from depression and killing themselves when we know perfectly well how to treat this illness, asks Dr. Friedman. Dr. Friedman addresses that, and he says there is some evidence that girls who've shown greater rates of increase in depression than boys experience more cyberbullying because of their greater use of mobile phones and texting. However, most studies of digital technology and mental health are correlative. They cannot prove causation at this point based on the research. But, but I mean, a, a correlative connection is not something to be dismissed. It's just perhaps not the driving force behind the spike. He goes on to some of the other answers you might immediately think, drugs and alcohol. Uh, but he goes, in this case, they're un- an unlikely explanation as the study cited above controlled for drug use. In addition, there's no evidence of a significant increase in drug or alcohol use in young people during the study period. So controlling for that and not seeing a, a spike within that age demographic, drugs and alcohol, seems like it's got to be something else. Um, I think we're sort of uh, on the other side of the bell curve on that, though. And uh, Friedman addresses that as well. You know, he, he goes back to the black box warning for antidepressants back in 2004. 
I mean, so this is this is some time since this really started to get some public attention and documentaries made and so forth. And it's a legitimate area of concern, make no mistake. But he uh, goes on to write, within two years of that FDA advisory, antidepressant use dropped by 31 percent in teens and 24 percent in young adults. He said, although it, its use has recovered somewhat after 08, it's remained below levels that would have been expected based on prescribing patterns before the warnings appeared. You know, these are all bits and pieces. I mean, we're talking about trying to address this at the micro individual cases. There's going to be some variants, of course. He goes on to say the good news is that we don't have to wait for all the answers to know what to do. We know that various psychotherapies, medication are effective in treating depression. We just need to do a better job of identifying, reaching out and providing resources for at risk youth, concluding uh, every day. 16 people die from suicide. What are we waiting for? Perhaps is there something else going on that he didn't cover, though, and I wouldn't have expected him to cover because he's coming from a strictly scientific perspective. This piece that uh, my friend, our friend, friend of the show, Bob Woodson, wrote in The Hill over the Christmas holiday mentioned this issue. And um, he pointed out that in Palo Alto, distraught parents have taken part in a quote unquote bridge watch in response to a rash of teen suicides. Silicon Valley, the suicide rate for youths in Silicon Valley is six times the national average. What's happening here? These are largely kids from well-to-do to, you know, uber-wealthy families going to good schools in nice environments around smart, successful other people, right? In the absence of hope and vision for their lives, writes Woodson, the sons and daughters of the wealthy have hurled themselves to their deaths. The poverty is not material. Is it possible that there is a spiritual component to this? They're not seeing purpose and meaning in their lives, but they're surrounded by what we tell people, young people too, will give you purpose and meaning, which is make money and acquire things. Well, they've already got that. So now what? Woodson in his piece, he talked to a friend of his named Bill Chambra, who's a uh, policy wonk for the Hudson Institute, and uh, said, uh, I always took away from gatherings where you go to um, poor neighborhoods, neighborhoods struggling with addiction, visible addiction, drug addiction, struggling with high levels of crime. And you talk to the people that are trying to make their way or recover from being an ex something. He uh, said, Shamber said, I always took away from these gatherings the feeling it was somehow related to the struggles that I faced in my own life. Struggles different from that theirs only because they occurred on streets of more fashionable neighborhoods. I may never have been addicted to heroin or crack, but had I not in fact been enslaved to the other legal so-called acceptable chemical addictions, had I not been hopelessly addicted at various points in my life to work, to scholarly credentials, to physical appearances, to professional success, political power, social status, I may never have been a prisoner behind physical bars, but had I not been in prison with my own inflated ego, my exaggerated notions of who I am, what I can do, my false presuppositions and prejudices about what others can do and who they are. I may never have prostituted my body for money, and thank God Bill Schomburg didn't because it wouldn't have worked out well for him. But far worse, how many times have I prostituted my spirit, my very soul, to achieve petty recognition, to win applause from the crowd, to impress a boss, to win professional advancement? Dane in Highland, Indiana. Social media is absolutely the cause and the problem with teen suicide. Instagram make all of the gratification immediate. Nobody has to try anymore. Amy and Gurney. I think, you know, in a time when we are supposed to be more connected than ever, I think people are more isolated than ever. And I think young people are, are missing out on the real relationship and the human connection that makes us all feel better about who we are and about being human. Zach in Northwest Indiana. You know, you've got kids going through school. The whole school career, they're being told, 
doom and gloom constantly. And once you get out of here, you only got 12 years and all that other situations like that. And I mean, that has to put a big burden on a child growing up. Travis in Highland Park. So um, I want to piggyback on what the last caller said and what you guys are talking about right now. In addition to the doom and gloom that they're being taught, they're also being taught that it's all their fault. I think that adds to the depression of the doom and gloom. The world is going to end in 12 years, and you're the cause of it. That's a different wrinkle. Yeah. All right. Thanks for the call, Travis. Right there, that does present a bit of a different wrinkle. Pete in Montgomery. Self-esteem is derived from doing things worthy of esteem. Today's society basically says that, that the only things worthy of esteem come from keeping up with the Kardashians and all kinds of other social media nonsense. Art in Manhattan. I think today's kids are entitled. They're not brought up the way we were. Uh, There's too much social media out there for these kids to see some of their friends that are successful and they want to be like them or they want to be like a Kardashian. Dave in Homewood. My wife and I lost her middle son uh, in early 2018. I've been giving this a lot of thought over time. I mean, it was a bitter divorce uh, before I came in the picture. You know, he grew up that way. Somebody said that they don't feel like they're loved or they're isolated. I don't think it's that. So he had a lot of friends. I think there's a lot of different things involved. Mm-hmm. I think it's pretty much all the above of everything we've been hearing. Mm-hmm. It's no one single factor. Margo and Burr Ridge. I think also our society, uh, the left part of our society, is confusing these kids terribly about what makes a good person. They are being told to the nth degree, charity, 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 give it away, volunteer, blah, blah. No, 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 no. What people really want is what they've always wanted, things for themselves and their family. And these kids are being confused. Randy in Crown Point, Indiana. You know, this has to, I like these studies, but they have to go back to the 60s. And you have to look at the separation of church and state and the removal of God from everything. There's no accountability, and, and, and that's what people are missing. Thanks for the call, Randy. You've got to go. Look, you're right. This is what I was trying to get to with the Woodson piece, the spiritual poverty piece. And uh, if you have nothing to fear at the end or look forward to at the end, I would describe it. And nothing to serve throughout your time on this mortal coil. Hmm. Appreciate all the calls. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof, and this is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, and now we're pleased to be joined by David French, senior editor at The Dispatch, columnist for Time, Iraqi war vet. David, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Hey, I wanted to get your reaction, uh, not just to the decision to uh, take out Soleimani, the Iranian response, but uh, maybe backing into that by reacting to what Nancy Pelosi is doing, which is circulating a war powers resolution to limit what the administration can do without congressional authorization, uh, with, uh, after, uh, uh, and, and essentially suggesting that uh, the administration will not have the power to act without congressional authorization after 30 days if no further action is taken by Iran. Um, it, it seems to me that what the president has argued has come to pass in terms of the Iranian response, reestablishing deterrence, and perhaps providing an opportunity to reopen diplomatic channels in a substantive way, and Nancy Pelosi is um, 
uh, a bit far afield with her war, war powers resolution. Yeah, I think if we're talking about um, what, what the president did with Soleimani was absolutely authorized both constitutionally and by Congress. And, and let me explain. So American forces in Iraq are in Iraq by, under congressional valid congressional authorizations. Um, so they're there conducting a congressionally authorized mission, a constitutionally authorized mission. And while they're there under that congressionally authorized mission, they have a right of self-defense. I mean, that's law of war 101. It's inherent within wherever American troops lawfully exist, they have this right to self-defense. And so when the United States took out Soleimani in Iraq, by the way, he was in Iraq. They were operating according to their congressional mandate. They have that right of self-defense to conduct that congressionally authorized mission. Moreover, they have a right of self-defense if Iran launches an attack on U.S. troops like it did last night. So I think the bottom line is acts of self-defense, while the U.S. conducts its congressionally authorized mission in Iraq, don't need further congressional approval. Now, if Trump wanted to escalate beyond acts of self-defense, and move into an affirmative war against Iran, yes, that would require congressional approval. But we got to be really clear about what's happening here and what has happened here. But just we just, just one point there. But with respect to what Pelosi is proposing, this seems intended to handcuff the president uh, categorically rather than make the distinction you're making. Right. I mean, I, and I think she knows this is symbolic. I mean, it's not going anywhere. Mitch McConnell is not going to right. limit the president's hand here. I think... As of this very moment, I mean, all of this stuff is rapidly moving. Uh, But as of this very moment, we seem to have an opportunity for de-escalation. There seems to be an opportunity for the president to basically take the W, so to speak. Um, If you're going to talk about if the exchange is we take out one of the Iran's leading commanders, a person who's been a mastermind of an enormous amount of havoc across the region and has the blood of hundreds of Americans on his hand in exchange for an ineffective missile barrage, um, even though that missile barrage was from Iran itself, that's a positive exchange for the United States. You would you would take that. Um, And so there's a chance that we have now for de-escalation. We'll see what happens. The bottom line is, as of right now, according to the way this has unfolded, uh, the president has been acting completely within his statutory and constitutional authority. And uh, with respect to next steps, it, is it your position that uh, with the possibility of deterrent, with, with deterrence reestablished, arguably, and now the possibility of a diplomacy, it's not the end of diplomacy, as Rand Paul was saying the other day, that uh, the United States, it would behoove the United States to make the first move, to make the first overture, get beyond this? Oh, I don't think that we need to make another diplomatic overture. I think we don't have any compelling need to strike Iran again. Maintain the maximum pressure of the sanctions. One of the greatest, one of the advantages that we have in this in this long struggle with Iran right now is Iran is in a weakened state. Uh, we're not necessarily playing the strongest hand in the world either. I mean, the American people have zero desire for an outright war with Iran, um, but Iran is in a weakened state, and I, I think that. Where it's a very delicate, it's a very delicate, complex problem set we face right now, and 
we, as of at this moment, hardliners in Iran are descendant. Uh, they are saying, I told you so, to the quote-unquote moderates, although that word doesn't mean the same thing in Iran as it means in the U.S. Um, they're saying, I told you so, about the, um, the Iran nuclear deal that a lot of the hardliners had, had uh, warned the moderates against signing that deal, saying America would break its word. And so right now the hardliners are ascendant. Uh, the idea that w- there would be in another deal with the U.S. I think is unlikely, though not impossible. But I, I don't necessarily think we need to make a diplomatic overture. Uh, I think we just need to continue to maintain pressure. We're talking to David French, senior editor at The Dispatch. David, uh, I want to hold you over just to get a, have a brief conversation as well about the crack up at the Methodist Church, which you've written about. Uh, we'll be right back with David French on The Dan Proft Show. This is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're talking to David French, senior editor at the Dispatch, columnist for Time and an Iraqi war vet. And uh, there were some possibly biblical occurrences. I don't know. They seemed biblical yesterday uh, in Iraq with an earthquake striking near uh, the Iraqi nuclear plant, one of the Iraqi nuclear plants, and this uh, partial solar eclipse that looked like two red horns coming uh, out from the Persian Gulf. It was sort of wild. Uh, and uh, speaking of uh, matters biblical, there is this story that's been sort of underreported because of what's going on geopolitically, and that is the breakup of uh, the Methodist Church. Uh, David French, you've written about this. It, it, it reads to me like and the, the, this breakup is over the, uh, belief in the redefinition of marriage, uh, effectively. It, 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 it reads to me like traditionalists won the vote on this matter from a a theological perspective last year, but now the more progressive element of the Methodist Church is kicking them out. Yeah, that's a good shorthand description. Uh, So what what happened last year was the traditionalists narrowly won the vote over essentially defining the theology of uh, the theology of the Christian sexual ethic in the Methodist Church, but the vote was won overwhelmingly by um, overseas church, overseas Methodist churches. So the African Methodist Church, the Church in the Philippines, and Latin America was overwhelmingly traditionalist, and the church here in the United States was much more uh, strongly progressive, uh, much more uh, theologically liberal. Right. And so there was this huge tension here because here in the United States, uh, you have a majority. Uh, a majority of Methodists supported the more liberal plan, and then overseas, a strong, strong, strong majority of Methodists supported the traditional plan. And so, they, as a lot of people predicted, as soon as that vote was taken, they essentially said nothing was settled, uh, that the tensions remain. And and so, I think that this, what's happening here, is a natural outgrowth. Of those tensions, and it's a natural outgrowth of the fact that here in the United States, the more liberal wing of the Methodist Church has the numbers. Well, and it, and it seems like that uh, uh, outside of the evangelical community, it seems like that's the case uh, in most of these religious institutions, at least the, the man-made part of it. I mean, I don't think the Methodist Church is something John Wesley would necessarily recognize today. <laughs> that would be true. That would be true of big chunks of the Presbyterian Church. That would be true of the Episcopal Church, that would be true of much of the sort of the mainline Protestant denominations. 
uh, they really have become, in many ways, just almost a separate branch or stream of Christianity. There are very substantial theological differences between mainline churches and evangelical churches, and I, I just don't think the mainstream media, as by and large, there are exceptions, but by and large, understands that. They, they look at it all through the prism of an issue, whether the, you know, if the issue is gay marriage or if the issue is gender identity. But the real underlying cause of the division is theology. What do you, what do you believe about the Bible? What do you believe about Jesus? And your determination of various issues tends to flow from that first cause, that first cause being your theological, your underlying theological view. Yeah, and for example, I mean, getting beyond, as you say, getting beyond a particular issue, uh, marriage redefinition, um, the, with respect to the LBGT policy agenda or ideology, if you will, I mean, there's a fundamental question, and, and I like the way um, our mutual friend L. Moeller puts it, ontology trumps autonomy. And you either be, you either believe that you either believe the nature of being trumps your personal choices or you don't. And that's a real divide that's difficult to uh, negotiate. Well, right, exactly. And, and, you know, it's even to the point where you now have two different streams of the Protestant church that are more sort of opposed to each other and more different from the they are from each other than the tr- traditional Catholic Protestant divide. And mm. So evangelicals. Uh, feel in many ways feel now a much evangelical Protestants feel a much greater affinity towards, you know, small O Orthodox uh, Catholics than they do towards their mainline Protestant brethren because the theological differences have just grown so vast uh, that there is a, that's one of the reasons why you see a, a much larger evangelical Catholic alliance on social and cultural issues than you ever used to. And uh, speaking of the, the evangelical part of that alliance, uh, Eric Metaxas' uh, piece in the Wall Street Journal about uh, the Christian case, the evangelical Christian case for supporting President Trump, and he writes uh, the following, the pejorative de jure is to call evangelicals transactional, as though buying a loaf of bread and not simply paying for one were somehow faithless, but what is sneeringly called transactional is representational government in which patriarch citizens vote deputizing others to act on their behalf for the good of the country. Isn't it conceivable that faithful Christians think Mr. Trump is the best choice? Uh, is that a fair way to characterize the thinking of conservative Christians and uh, those who, who, on a good faith basis, believe Trump is the best option available? It's a fair way to characterize the way a lot of people think about it. The problem I have with that is it completely slides under the rug the fact that that's not the way evangelicals thought about politics until, oh, 2015, 2016. <laughs> and so it, before then, if you were going to ask a cohort of Americans of character important in politicians, the segment of Americans that would most likely say yes, that character is an independently important variable in your decision-making or evangelicals. And that was an argument made very loudly and strongly and clearly, particularly during the Clinton administration. Mm -hmm. And then by late 2015, early 2016, the cohort of Americans who were now least likely to say that character mattered were evangelicals. And so either it matters or it doesn't matter. Or or, or is is there a third option that maybe we've given up the notion that we're going to have uh, people of high moral standing in high political office in this country? Well, pretty convenient to make the choice when your own partisan partisan side can suffer. Um, I I have a hard time viewing that 
any of this is, oh, you know, I, I've yet to see the, the piece that says everything we argued for a quarter century was wrong and here's why. So that, that's one of the problems I have with the whole metaxas transactional argument, and I keep hearing it. And sure, I mean, if that was the position of the evangelical church for the last 50 years, we wouldn't be having this discussion. But it has not been. It has not been. And to the culture, we have very loudly said for generations, character matters in politicians. You should read the 1998 Southern Baptist Convention statement on moral character in, poli- uh, in political leaders. Very powerful stuff. Very powerful. And note the date, 1998. He is David French, senior editor at the Dispatch, columnist for Time, and Iraqi war vet. David, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Take care. This is the Dan Proft Show. Time now for another reason why Dan Proft is single. Yeah, this is a little segment that uh, we've been doing on the morning show I co-host in Chicago. Now, there's uh, obvious reasons why I'm single from the female perspective, but this topic is, or this little series is, why I'm single from my perspective. I get to have a say, too. Uh, And that brings us to uh, January the month we're in, as a National Divorce Month, sort of de facto National Divorce Month. That's according to MarketWatch. Lawyers in the U.S. see a 25 to 30 percent increase in divorce cases during the first month of the year, says uh, a family law attorney New York City, uh, in New York City, Jacqueline Newman. January really is divorce month. Now is when people will come for initial consults to get educated about divorce, and then they may actually file in the spring. Well, why is that? Well, uh, from a business perspective, she says, uh, a lot of uh, people wait until the spouse's year-end bonuses happen uh, so that, uh, uh, you know, they they potentially have a little bit more uh, marital property to divvy up. Also, uh, she goes on to add that despite many clients claim the split came out of nowhere, there are certain tells that can precipitate divorce. And it's not just uh, the year-end bonus. Uh, For example, lavish spending or cutting back. A spouse will set up a lifestyle they want supported by the other spouse. They may spend time shopping to show that their lifestyle involves expensive clothes, dinners, and theater. So if you see an increase in spending, lavish spending, set up that lifestyle, that could be the big D is on the horizon. Or the flip side of cutting back. A husband might say, we're not going on vacation this year. No more European trips. He'll start doing things like that. So when they get divorced, he can say, oh, it was years ago we went on that fancy trip. We don't do that now. It's all about trying to uh, uh, establish the lifestyle upon which you'll base your claims to the marital property, I suppose. Other tells, new haircuts and hitting the gym. Makeovers can mean infidelity. That's sort of self-explanatory. Another example or another tell, potentially. No more nagging. If your spouse has been complaining about you and everything you do and then suddenly stops, that may be a bad sign. Again, uh, family law attorney Newman, counselor Newman, when someone stops complaining and won't talk to you about any of their problems, it's because they're trying to create distance. It could be a way to try and protect them and you so they could rationalize when the relationship is ending. We weren't that close anyway. Uh, Also, and this is sort of self-explanatory, but. Creepy. When marriages turn sour, Newman says, a lot of people think about having another having another baby will make everything better. 
can't you just get another dog? She said, oftentimes it just adds more stress to a stressful situation. Uh, yeah, I would say so. So those are some of the tells. And the fact that you have to be on guard for such tells is why Dan Proft is single. This is the Dan Proft Show. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show the world is a complicated place you need someone to expose the political fakers fixers and takers and cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all that person is dan proft and this is the dan proft show Welcome to the Dan Prop Show. Iran fired more than a dozen ballistic missiles at uh, U.S. forces in Iraq, striking two bases, Erbil in northern Iraq and the Al-Assad base in western Iraq, about uh, 4.30 p.m. our time yesterday. No uh, American casualties. Iran's foreign minister, Javad, Javad Sarif, saying immediately after the attacks concluded that uh, that was it. The, the uh, Iranians do not seek escalation or war. They know this. They know that if they get themselves involved in a confrontation with us and get entangled in a military way, they will get their feet trapped. They might harm us, but they will harm themselves many times more, and they realize that. Yeah, okay. Um, well, the, the good news is, and this is the good news, it really was a move to de-escalate. In this case, it really was what, uh, well, Zarif didn't say that, but it's essentially what he implied. It was, we got to do something. We got to uh, make a safe phasing, a face saving measure. And that's what they did. And uh, it really speaks to what General Petraeus said on Face the Nation on Sunday, which is striking Soleimani, taking him out, was reestablishing deterrence in the relationship between the United States and Iran. And that deterrence, deterrent effect needs to be in place. It is now. This is a victory for the Trump administration. Doesn't mean this is the end of the tension with Iran. But it certainly undermines the hysteria of the Beltway Big Government Press Corps writing cover for their Democrat socialists on the Hill and candidates for president. President Trump at a media veil with the Greek prime minister yesterday restated the rationale behind the decision to authorize the strike, uh, making mention that uh, U.S. senators will be briefed today by his national security team, including cabinet secretaries Pompeo and Esper, about the intelligence that has been referenced. Well, number one, I knew the past. His past was horrible. He was a terrorist. He was so designated by President Obama, as you know. And he wasn't even supposed to be outside of his own country. He was. So right there. Uh, But that's, in a way, the least of it. We had an attack very recently that he was in charge of where we had people horribly wounded, one dead. In fact, the number now, as of this morning, I believe, is two dead. And uh, that was his. He was... Uh, traveling with the head of Hezbollah. Uh, They weren't there to discuss a vacation. They weren't there to go to a nice resort someplace in Baghdad. They were there to discuss bad business. And we saved a lot of lives by terminating his life. And uh, President Trump also fielded the question about uh, maintaining a true presence in Iraq. This was interesting. Or is it time to withdraw? 
uh, Iran would have a much bigger foothold, and the people of Iraq do not want to see Iran running the company, that, the country. That I can tell you. So uh, we'll see how it all works out. Uh, I know it's going to work out well for us because uh, at some point we want to be able to get out. We want to bring our soldiers back home. I will say that we have had tremendous support from the people of Iraq appreciating what we've done, and they don't want to see Iran go into Iraq. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Christopher Bedford. He's senior editor at The Federalist, thefederalist.com, vice chairman of Young Americas for Freedom, board member at the National Journalism Center, and author of the uh, recently Trump-tweeted book, The Art of the Donald. He didn't tweet the book, but he tweeted a mention of it saying, go pick it up and read it. The Art of the Donald is the book. Christopher Bedford, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So uh, what about President Trump's pronouncements, both on, on the rationalization, I mean, the question of the intelligence that provided the basis for green lighting this, will probably be resolved uh, definitively with the briefing today. But on the uh, uh, the look ahead questions like continued true presence in Iraq, were you satisfied with his answer that, uh, yeah, we want to get out at some point, but this isn't the point? Not particularly. It, it, that's what we've been hearing from the last two presidents, uh, President Obama and President Trump, that they would like to get out. And President Obama withdrew a lot of soldiers from the Middle East and Afghanistan, as has President Trump by and large. But the, the killing of Soleimani here, it, I, what I think was the right and necessary killing of him, the establishment of the power cycle with the United States in charge, the establishment of deterrence, that was a very good thing. But Americans should take heed when they looked around at the reactions. The Iraqi population is broadly split, the, split the activist aspects of it, into two sides, those who liked him and are pro-Iran, the Shia, the Shia Muslims, and then the Sunni Muslims who are against Iran and hate Iran. And the problem for the United States is, well, the Iranian-allied Shia Muslims in half the country were fighting ISIS and even working with the United States to some capacity in the past war when Trump sent more soldiers there. The other side prefer ISIS to, to the Shia and the Iranian-backed Muslims because ISIS bans them from drinking. ISIS bans them from cigarettes. ISIS commits all kinds of crimes, but they feel like it's less likely their family will be massacred in a sectarian war if their own religion is in charge. In the middle of that country, we have Fortress America, which we can continue this this war and this fight and having to send the 82nd Airborne and other boys and girls from Illinois and Iowa and California to, to Iraq to keep peace, but we'll always have to be there We'll always have to continue playing it. And as our energy reserves and other aspects of our economy are opened up more and more, it's it's less and less necessary for us to be there as opposed to focusing on the major threats to U.S. hegemony like China. Uh, but what about the argument that some would advance that, OK, well, uh, you have uh, Iraq, uh, sort of a half a client state of Iran right now because of the void created when Obama cut short the surge. And if we pulled out, you have the, the one of two prospects, uh, sectarian violence uh, throughout Iraq or even, perhaps even worse, a replay of the Iran-Iraq war from 35 years ago. And then we're going to be draw, drawn back into a, bi- a, a bigger conflict. Well, then you just have to wonder to what, what timeline you want to put that on. As President Trump said, they'd like to pull out, but not now. Are they, going, they have to wait until the Shia and the Sunni get along. They'll be, we'll be waiting there until the Republic is long gone. It'll be a thousand years. It would 
it, it, there needs to be a sunset provision on these things. And, and Washington, D.C. is very, very keen to do this all the time. For example, we, we saw with the ISIS conflict, we saw a clear and present danger, the slaughtering of Christians and other minorities in the region, the destroying of cultural sites, the the wholesale medieval army marching across the deserts in Syria. We sent soldiers there to fight it, and that was just. But then when they tried to leave, everybody in Washington said, well, what about fighting Turkey to establish Kurdistan in northern Syria? Where that was possibly authorized under fighting ISIS or under the under the original congressional approval for war against terror, I, I can't find it anywhere. But that's how quickly the mission creep yeah. will continue. And we've been in Iraq since 2003. People are joining the military now who weren't alive during 9-11. Interesting piece by Chris Farrell, who's the director of uh, investigations for Judicial Watch, uh, about uh, Soleimani's death and how that should be also considered with respect to our southern border and bringing the conversation back home to securing that southern border, he points up the uh, Hezbollah-Mexican drug cartel alliance that um, uh, that the DEA had, was attempting to interdict uh, as recently as 2017 before the Obama administration shut down that program. He also uh, dates uh, references a case dating back to 2011, DEA recording meetings between cartel members and a uh, uh, a Quds Force operative planning explosive attacks on the Saudi ambassador to the U.S. at a Washington uh, at that Washington D.C. restaurant that was reported. Uh, other meetings between uh, drug cartels and uh, Iranian-backed, well, the uh, Iranian uh, Quds Force, including uh, plotting to bomb the Israeli embassy in Washington D.C., the Saudi and Israeli embassies in Argentina. Um, what about that? Uh, re- re- using this as the opportunity to say. You know, this this is still a threat here in our hemisphere, right at our southern border, because of the terrorist reach of that state sponsor of terror called Iran. That's true. Uh, and the border is a, is a major aspect of that. The Hezbollah, Iran, through the Quds Force and through Hezbollah over in, in Lebanon, has sent a number of agents over to, to have been arrested in the United States. They have also sent a number of agents to friendly governments in Central America and Latin America who will be able to skip their visa processes and then try to make their way up to the United States. They're, they've shown, as you said, an interest in targeting in targeting restaurants and embassies, uh, prominent Jews, some probably American generals now, uh, in the United States as well as in Central and South America where people generally travel without fear of that terror. And that's a whole point to the U.S. southern border, too. Right now, we are very, very worried about the national security aspects of our situation abroad. Well, our southern border is so porous that terror and its operatives are able would be able to get across that border fairly easily. He is Christopher Bedford, senior editor at The Federalist, vice chairman of Young Americans for Freedom, board member at the National Journalism Center, and author of the new book, The Art of the Donald. And uh, the Donald must like it because he tweeted about it, so you want to pick that up. Christopher Bedford, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. President Trump addressing the nation today. 
in the aftermath of the retaliatory missile strike by Iran on two bases where U.S. troops are staged in Iraq. Thankfully, no casualties, no injuries. Uh, the president saying minimal damage to the installations, uh, but uh, incredible damage to the story that the D.C. press corps, congressional Democrats, Democrat socialist candidates for president were attempting to tell over the last three days, the last 72 hours, including the Sunday talk show uh, Panjan drums who uh, were skeptical, if not outright derisive in their reaction to the suggestion that what Trump did in taking out Soleimani was to de-escalate. That what Trump did in taking out Soleimani was to reinstitute a deterrent effect vis-a-vis the Iranians that would result in the de-escalation of violence, preventing a war, not starting one. Well, what do you think now, President Trump, uh, explaining? The American people should be extremely grateful and happy. No Americans were harmed in last night's attack by the Iranian regime. We suffered no casualties. All of our soldiers are safe, and only minimal damage was sustained at our military bases. Our great American forces are prepared for anything. Iran appears to be standing down. Standing down. Which is a good thing for all parties concerned and a very good thing for the world. But that doesn't mean the pressure is going to be lifted from Iran. In fact, we're going to press down, which is what you should do when you have your boot on your enemy's neck. But it doesn't necessarily have to be expressed in violence. Nations have tolerated Iran's destructive and destabilizing behavior in the Middle East and beyond. Those days are over. Iran has been the leading sponsor of terrorism and their pursuit of nuclear weapons threatens the civilized world. We will never let that happen. Mm. Uh, Goes on. By removing Soleimani, we have sent a powerful message to terrorists. If you value your own life, you will not threaten the lives of our people. As we continue to evaluate options in response to Iranian aggression, the United States will immediately impose additional punishing economic sanctions on the Iranian regime. These powerful sanctions will remain until Iran changes its behavior. Mm. Uh, incentives matter. Uh, don't forget, this is an Iranian, econ- uh, Iranian economy, which contracted, its GDP contracted by 10% last year, getting hammered, which is in part why the mullahs have had to endure protesters and uh, eliminate some of those protesters to keep up appearances in the streets of Tehran. President Obama, uh, President Obama, unlike President Obama, uh, it is peace through strength with President Trump. More like President Reagan with the Soviets. Peace through strength. Peace through strength. And that was President Trump, President Trump's message to Iran. Finally, to the people and leaders of Iran. We want you to have a future 
and a great future, one that you deserve, one of prosperity at home and harmony with the nations of the world. The United States is ready to embrace peace with all who seek it. I want to thank you, and God bless America. Thank you very much. Thank you. So uh, still a warmonger, uh, still a feckless, tough talker, limp actor. I mean, those were the two options you uh, were treated to in terms of descriptions of Trump based on the particular geopolitical issue of the day, right? He was a warmonger when he is uh, taking out Soleimani. He is a limp actor when he is withdrawing, announcing the withdrawal of troops from Syria. Or is it somebody that is executing? They call it principled realism. Use whatever moniker you want executing a vision for America's role in the world that was laid out in his campaign and is being followed, given all the variables that are impactful, by the president and his national security team. I mean, he can be rhetorically erratic. There's no question about it. But when it comes to the policies that are implemented, the policies that are implemented, there's what people say and there's what people do. And sometimes, even if there's a consistent thread between the two, uh, one aspect of it is more artful than the other. And I prefer people to be more artful in what they actually do than perhaps necessarily how they describe what they're going to do. And perhaps that president, that's President Trump's case. All of the arguments about him, who he start, I mean, starting with he is the Manchurian candidate. He's Putin's Manchurian candidate. Putin's man in Washington, D.C., and yet, of course, we know the substance of it, his actions have been to take as hard a line against Russia uh, as has been taken against uh, that country since the fall of the Soviet Union. Peace through strength. How many of these caricatures of Trump particularly Trump's policy choices, must we endure before we say, I don't believe a word that you're saying, so many of these cable talk show hosts and D.C. press corps outlets, not to mention, of course, uh, politically motivated Democrats in Congress and running for president. I had another one, too, Facebook. Remember how uh, it was Russians... Speaking of big tech, it was Russians uh, that and uh, and and sort of disinformation campaigns that got Trump elected. New York Times obtained a recent internal memo from a senior Facebook executive, Andrew Bosworth. Bosworth throws cold water in a favorite conspiracy of the left. uh, Starting with Hillary Clinton, Cambridge Analytica, Russia, misinformation that got Trump elected. Uh, Bosworth says, was Facebook responsible for Trump getting elected? I think the answer is yes, but not for the reasons anyone thinks. He didn't get elected because of Russia or misinformation. He got elected because he ran the single best digital ad campaign I've ever seen from any advertiser, period. I'm no fan of Trump. I delivered, I uh, donated the max to Hillary. After the election, I wrote a post about Trump supporters that I'm told caused colleagues who had supported him to feel unsafe around me. But uh, Trump just did unbelievable work. 
They weren't running misinformation or hoaxes. They weren't micro-targeting or saying different things to different people. They just used the tools we had to show the right creative to each person. They use the use of custom audiences, video, commerce, and fresh creative remains the high watermark of digital ad campaigns, in my opinion. Their use. He did a better job. He out-executed the other side. It's just as simple as that. And he's out-executed the left when it comes to dealing with our enemies around the world, from Russia to Iran. This is the Dan Prop Show. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof, and this is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Uh, one of my favorite underappreciated academics and intellects in this country is a guy named Anthony Esselin. If you haven't uh, checked him out, you should. He used to teach at Providence. Now he is a uh, social commentator, translator of classical poetry, and writer in residence at Magdalen College, which is a small Catholic college in New Hampshire. He uh, thankfully contributes to amgreatness.com, American Greatness, to get uh, a little bit more distribution. Also, Touchstone Magazine, a journal of mere Christianity. You can check out his musings there as well. Uh, and uh, it's uh, wonderful when he can use his, when he chooses to use his understanding of the classics uh, and his religious perspective to inform uh, things that are occurring in real time that are of a political and cultural uh, feel. And so his piece, The Inertial States of America, the, inert, the Inertial States of America, as in we're inert, uh, he... Uh, goes back to uh, Teddy Roosevelt and setting up his argument uh, that uh, Teddy Roosevelt talked about the fellow feeling as a political factor, fellow feeling. Uh, its author, he writes, knew a lot about uh, political warf- warfare, which framed this uh, piece that he had written back in January of 1900. Knew a lot about political warfare, having fought the machines in New York City. Those who worked the levers of the machines were about to try to ruin him by promotion. Promoting him out of existence, pushing him in that summer's Republican convention for his nomination as candidate for vice president. But something happened to their uh, well-laid plans, of course, is that President McKinley was shot and killed in 1901 and Teddy Roosevelt became the president of the United States. Uh, he uh, said, neither our national nor our local civic life can be what it should be unless it's marked by the fellow feeling, the mutual kindness, the mutual respect, the sense of common duties and common interests, which arise when men take the trouble to understand one another and to associate together for a common object. Esselin is suggesting with this setup that it's this fellow feeling in America that's been lost. He um uh, Uh, provides a little bit more context. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt, who, uh, fresh out of Harvard, uh, went out uh, to visit with ranchmen and cowpunchers and game hunters. He uh, writes, did Roosevelt at the time, then I was thrown much with farmers, and I made up my mind it was the farmer upon whom the foundation of the Commonwealth really rested. 
Then I saw a good deal of railroad men. I grew to feel that, especially in their higher ranks, they typified the very qualities of courage, self-reliance, self-command, hardihood, capacity for work, power of initiative, power of obedience, which we most like to associate with the American name. Esselin observes, so it goes on. His point is well taken. It's good for a cowpuncher's son to go to Harvard. It may be even better for the Harvard scion to go out west among cowpunchers. And not just for the rich boy, but for the nation. That we might be one in truth rather than just on paper. And the rich boy will learn a great deal in the bargain. And Esselin makes the point. Remember, this was the progressive Roosevelt. Teddy Roosevelt, the, Teddy Roosevelt, the progressive who today sounds as if he were a member of the John Birch Society, quips Esselin. He uh, argued, if we're not righteous, then any unity we boast will be fragile or fictitious. And so Esselin asked the question, where now is our righteousness? We have reversed the wisdom of Solomon and now sought children in half to satisfy the feelings of their irresponsible parents. Our schools make up in soul-smothering routine and in humanity, what they lack in knowledge, and the morals are worse still. Hollywood was always part in the shade. It's now pitch dark. And isn't that what Richie, Ricky Gervais was saying in part with his uh, rip-roaring monologue on Sunday night? Uh, it was a different world a hundred, little over 100 years ago. Nothing unites us now, not religious faith, not cultural memory, not a common understanding of virtue, not the nature, not the natural goodness of manhood and womanhood, not children, not the elderly, nothing. We do not seek the naked bedrock of character and capacity that Roosevelt wrote of because there are judgments against us. We are the inertial states of America. I wish it were not so. Uh, Esalen doesn't necessarily give a prescription for how we can Start being, start being the Urschel states of America again. But it's important to get a proper diagnosis if you want to treat the malady. And Esalen provides the proper diagnosis. This is the Dan Prof Show. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. I'm just discussing that uh, excellent piece by Anthony Esselin, one of my uh, favorite deep thinkers, uh, about uh, the inertial states of America. Uh, Something from that piece that I, I didn't get to, but I want to before our next guest joins us. Uh, he talks about um, the boy life. Athenian democracy depended on the gymnasium, which functions as, uh, as school and athletic arena and military training ground. When you are stripped for the arena, you can't tell rich man from poor. Stripped for the arena, you can't tell rich man from poor, but you can tell the strong from the weak and the brave from the timid. The boy who stands up for his rights, or better still, for the rights of a smaller boy against a bully, wins the esteem of his fellows. And if he had in Teddy Roosevelt's time to win it with his fist, so much the better. Nowadays, a boy of no special intelligence or athletic prowess will hardly ever be in the company of a large group of boys doing something interesting or risky. He will not be noticed at all. 
unless perchance he begins to put on lipstick and a skirt. Then we throw him a party. Uh, and isn't that the case? Uh, in point of fact, uh, this piece by Megan Murphy, who is a who is the founder of Feminist Current, a uh, radical feminist blog and podcast, and a contributor to The Spectator, uh, in her uh, recent piece, she details a lawsuit that's been filed by a man who wants to compete in the Miss USA pageant and finds it, of course, discriminatory that he is not allowed to compete in a female beauty pageant. For more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined by the aforesaid Megan Murphy. Megan, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me on. So um, the uh, case of Anita Green, uh, this is the man identifying as a woman who wants to compete in the Miss USA pageant. Um, and from a, you know, I, I appreciate your perspective because it, it highlights a conflict that uh, you have written about, Andrew Sullivan has written about, others have written about between second and third wave and perhaps now fourth wave feminists uh, and uh, the larger LGBTQ, et cetera, movement. Um, so from the feminist perspective, what's troubling to you about uh, this story? I mean, it's it's really a total reversal as far as what feminist goals were during the second wave and up until pretty recently and what they appear to be now. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't argue that the goals of the trans movement are feminist in any way, but certainly a lot of people claim they are. I mean, back in 1968, uh, a protest against Miss America that was um, organized by New York Radical Women was one of the things that launched the uh, radical feminist women's liberation movement because they viewed this as you know, the embodiment of sexism and sort of enforcing, you know, these these feminine stereotypes, which they viewed as sexist onto women and, and um, insisting that women be judged on that basis, be, you know, objectified, be judged based on their looks, essentially. And now we have this man, Anita Green, um, fighting for the supposed right to participate in this practice um, and claiming that to be excluded from the beauty pageants constitutes some form of discrimination or, or a violation of his human rights, even. Yeah, it's a, a confounding time, to be sure. So uh, more recently than uh, the, the going back, the arguments against beauty pageants uh, back 40 or 50 years ago, more recently, the beauty pageants have continued, but they done they have done things like eliminate the swimsuit competition. So now are we going to have men competing as women in pageants and bring back the swimsuit competition because maybe they want to, you know, flaunt their stuff as it were, uh, the way that, uh, I don't know, a Caitlyn Jenner does or something, you know, to, to be women of high fashion and to have people, uh, appreciate their beauty. I mean, it, it seems like this is a, a full, the, the potential of a full reversal from the last 40 or 50 years being led by men pretending to be women. I mean, it's only fair that they get to participate in the swimsuit competition, I suppose. <laughs> it's, it's very strange because, you know, on one hand, I'm sort of like, sure, let men participate in beauty pageants. I certainly am no fan of beauty pageants. I don't think they really do any good for women. I think they're kind of a relic of the past. And on the other hand, of course, I disagree with this idea that people like Anita Green push which is that a woman is defined by these things, you know, by her ability to look beautiful in a sparkling evening ground, evening gown and parade across stage in a bikini and essentially be viewed as appropriately 
attractive, sexually attractive to male judges. Um, so on one hand, I'm, I would sort of like to say to these men, you know, have at it. Uh, I certainly don't need any ownership over these beauty pageants. I'm sure there's many women who agree with me. Um, but, you know, on the other hand, it, it really is sort of reinforcing these, these sexist stereotypes about women because feminists have fought for so long to say, you know, a woman is just a, <clears throat> excuse me, a woman is just a female. Um, she's only defined as a woman because she's female. She's not a woman because she wears high heels or because she wears makeup or, um, you know, because she's ladylike and so on and so forth. And that's what the trans movement is saying. The trans movement is saying that if you identify with these stereotypes, these, you know, femininity as it's called, that's what defines a woman. It has nothing to do with whether or not you're female. So if you're a male who likes feminine things, you're also a woman just like any other woman. Well, right. I mean, so the, the identitarian thing, and th- this has happened with uh, gays and lesbians too, where you say, well, well, yes, I'm gay or lesbian, but but I, my sexual orientation doesn't completely define me. I'm a three-dimensional human being. And it seems like the trans movement is going back in the direction of, no, you're just one-dimensional. Your your uh, identification is all, is all that you are. Right, exactly. Um, I mean... Because, and you know, what feminists have always said and what I continue to say is that, you know, if a person, a person can wear whatever clothes they like, you know, if a person, if a man wants to wear makeup, if he wants to wear a dress, if he wants to have long hair, then he can go ahead and do that. I'm not going to stop him. Um, you know, I'm not even going to stop someone from getting these these really extensive and invasive surgeries that, that some people get to transition. Um, that's up to them. Um, I want people to be free to live their lives in ways that feel authentic, in ways that make them feel happy and fulfilled. Um, but, you know, your clothes don't define you solely. Your appearance doesn't define you solely. And to say that because you put on a dress that makes you a woman, again, is, I mean, it's irrational, of course, because your clothes don't change your biology. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it, it sort of, it turns woman into something that's incredibly superficial. She is Megan Murphy, founder of Feminist Current, a radical feminist blog and podcast. And uh, I'll tweet out uh, at Dan Prof Show her piece in The Spectator about uh, this uh, Miss USA case. Megan, thanks so much for joining us on The Dan Prof Show. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Take care. This is The Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show and the incident that happened in White Settlement, Texas, the shooting that happened where, of course, uh, Jack Wilson stopped the church shooter, but not until after he had killed two congregants at West Freeway Church of Christ in White Settlement, Texas. It doesn't fit the gun-grabbing left's narrative on the obvious side good guy with a gun takes down bad guy with a gun. It also doesn't fit the left's narrative on one of the fundamental problems here with respect to bad guys having guns. And that's not necessarily the ubiquity of guns in America. It's the failures of law enforcement, both on the police side, as well as on the criminal justice side. And that seems, this seems to be another incident. It, uh, instance of that. 
we find that, and I'm not going to mention his name. I don't mention the names of these gunmen and these criminals. They don't deserve to be memorialized. The shooter in question had a history of mental illness and run-ins with the law. In uh, 2008, he was charged with aggravated assault in Texas. The charge later downgraded to misdemeanor deadly conduct. In 2012, an ex-wife in Oklahoma filed for a protective order that described him as, quote, a violent, paranoid person with a long line of assault and battery with and without firearms, unquote. Uh, After they divorced in 2011, she said he got more and more into drugs and that messed with his head, thus prompting the protective order. An Oklahoma judge in 2012 ruled him mentally incompetent to stand trial, committed him to a psychiatric facility. A year later, he pled guilty after the charges were downgraded to misdemeanors. uh, This is in uh, after he was arrested in uh, Oklahoma in 2011, charged with felony assault and battery with a dangerous weapon after attacking the owner of a donut shop. He was also charged with arson in, in a separate offense in which he was accused of starting a fire at a, cotton, uh, at, at a cotton field with flaming tampons. And then in January 2017, he, expected a, he accepted a plea deal finding him guilty of criminal trespass. And he was sentenced to 303 days of time served in Union County Jail, New Jersey. This was after Linden, New Jersey police found him with a 12-gauge shotgun. So uh, all along the way, there were people, there were his interactions with law enforcement, his processing through the criminal justice system and pleading down to lesser charges. There were uh, people in his life that were uh, red flagging him, if you will. And yet throughout it, despite a decade of run ins with the law, he winds up in that church with a 12 gauge shotgun again and he kills two people. And you think one more gun control law is going to prevent this? Or is it time we take a much harder look at particularly our criminal justice system and the plea bargaining done inside of it? This is the Dan Prop Show. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show.